Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Okay, so Tommy, it's all yours. Okay, thanks Randy. Well, it's a pleasure to be here guys. I'm quite excited about this. As I was saying, I do a lot of my teaching in a church sort of environment where sometimes going into New Testament backgrounds would not be the best thing that you can do on a Sunday morning. I would actually be all for it, but there we go. So we're looking at the Essenes, Zeti Scrolls. Overview of what I want to do is just share a few examples of why this sort of New Testament background study is so important for the Bible. Um, if, if any of you have ever done, like I think you probably do it here, a course on hermeneutics, biblical interpretation, they'll usually teach like grammatical, historical exegesis, that they call it that way of interpreting the Bible, that kind of emphasizes the need to take into account the history and the culture at the time the Bible was written. And this sort of stuff plays into that all the, t- all the time. Yeah, so this sort of study can sometimes be a little bit more, more work, but I really believe like the results of when you come to the text with a bit more knowledge and understanding of, of these things just gives you deeper insight and shed some new perspectives on some of the, the texts that we have in the Bible. It's about getting to know the world of the Bible, getting to know Jesus' world, basically, and that can only really be a good thing. So like, I think this is something that's really needed in a lot of the churches today. Um, one of the problems that I encounter is I, I teach quite a lot in different church settings. I, I do lecture for a university. So I, I see quite a lot of different settings. And one of the problems that's probably maybe more for the evangelical world is that we kind of treat the Bible simply as a devotional book. And what I, what I mean by there's nothing wrong with that, but what I mean by that is it's, and it's usually an emotional devotional book. So we are feeling something ourselves. We then go to the Bible and find an example of someone else feeling that same emotion. And we look and we take an application from it. <clears throat> That's absolutely fine. There's a place for all of that. But we mustn't stop there. And what I find is quite often that's where the sort of the evangelical church sort of plateaus at that point. And studies like this help us just to go that a little bit deeper. And that, in the ultimate sense, when you come back to do those devotions, will actually make those devotions much more meaningful and you'll have richer devotional experience in that. I once heard N.T. Wright say, um, you know, N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, uh, does a lot on New Testament backgrounds. His recent book has just been released this month, The New Testament and Its World. He, he once said he was so immersed in the world of the Bible that whenever he heard someone say the Great War in a UK setting, now, if you say the Great War in the UK, you're thought, thinking 1914 and onwards, but whenever he heard someone say the Great War, he immediately thought of 68 to 70 AD the great Jewish war and the destruction of the temple. He was that immersed in the text that that was just where his head went to. And in some ways, I really like that. I think as Christians, that should in some ways be where we're trying to get to. So the New Testament was uh, written really in, you know, against a first century Jewish background, second temple Judaism, as we call it. So what I'm hoping to do today is give you just a very brief overview. And I know you've, you've had a whole semester on this stuff, so the prob- I might do kind of do a bit of repetition, just give me a bit of grace on that. And we're going to look at the Essenes, the Sadducees, the Dead Sea Scrolls. But for the first part of the lesson, I want to just give you some examples that I've come across during my studies that shed light on the text. So you can see new ways that these sorts of historical studies, although they can take a bit more work, they do shed a lot of light. So the first one we're going to look at is Jewish burial traditions. This is first century 
and back actually, not just first century. These are ancient Near Eastern burial traditions, but also in first century Israel, we find these things too. So this is a quote from Craig Evans. He's a historical Jesus scholar, New Testament scholar. And he, he makes this statement in one of his articles. You can read it here. Um, historical anthropologists have speculated that as many as one quarter of the population in Jesus's time was ill, injured, and in need of medical attention. This grim possibility gives new light to the gospel's notice that the crowds were attracted to Jesus because he was known as a healer. And they, he came up, anthropologists get this, from examining the burial tombs, the family tombs in and all around Israel. And they've noticed that sometimes half or up to two thirds of the people in those tombs are usually young children, which hence they've speculated there's a high infant mortality rate. And as that means usually it's lack of healthcare and those sorts of things that contribute to that. So he's saying that the world at this time is very foreign to us because we're, we've all sort of grown up with reasonable a healthcare facility in the age of you know, post-antibiotics. A lot of things that were deadly in those days just are not even on our radar. But this was the world that we had then. Very high infant mortality, up to two, two-thirds of people's, you know, one in three, you might be expected to survive. So when this man comes around doing these healings, you can just help you give a little bit of understanding of why the crowds flocked to him. And a lot of the crowds, I'm sure, really had no concept of messianic aspirations maybe in that sense it was just the healing initially in itself would have been a very big draw and this is one of the reasons why we see so many people following him but later on in the gospels when things switch a little bit and his his messianic identity becomes clear not many of the you know the numbers have dramatically decreased at that point but in in parts of his ministry this is just gives us a little glimpse into helping understand the new testament world but we learn more from Jewish burial traditions, and let me give you a specific scriptural example. So let's read this again. I'm sure you can just read it on the screen, but feel free if you have Bibles and you want to open them. I am quite old-fashioned. I do like to have a printed page. Matthew 8, verses 18 to 22. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me, and, the, and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now, if you're familiar with this, if you read a big book on hard sayings of the Bible, I think Geisler's book and F.F. F. Bruce has a book, Hard Sayings of Jesus, this is always listed one of them. Most people assume it's a very harsh statement of Jesus. Here's a man who's obviously grieving his father, assumingly just died, they say, and he's just asking to do them the honor of burying his father. And Jesus is, for some reason, giving a very harsh and blunt reply and saying, no, you come with me now. And a lot of people, and I think quite rightly so, seem to see a bit of a a dichotomy between the message of what they find in the Bible and the gospel and then not allowing someone to grieve and to bury their parents. It's either you do this now or you're not part of my disciples. And that's why it's considered a hard statement. And obviously, you know, the commandment on your parents that right back in the, in the Decalogue. So they say, is Jesus actually instructing his disciples here to go against one of the Ten Commandments? And that is a problem for Jesus' teaching too. So the majority interpretation that you'll find if you read pretty much the, the vast majority of any commentaries on this, 
is that people, uh, Christian interpreters, they make a distinction and they try and say that his, his last words where he says, um, allow the dead to bury their own dead, they would say the first dead is referring to spiritual people. So let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Well, he's basically, what the interpretation says, oh, he's not saying, um, you know, you can't have your father buried. He's just saying, let the, fa- the other family members take care of that because you've got a more important discipleship mission to me. <clears throat> now, they're right that Jesus is emphasising the importance of discipleship in this verse, but they're, they're wrong. And I wanted to share with you a little bit now of the background of Jewish burial at this time that just gives you a whole different and deeper understanding of this practice of what we see here. So we know in first century burial practices, people were immediately buried after they died. And this comes from Deuteronomy, where you're not allowed to leave someone exposed or hanging on a tree or all these sorts of things, Deuteronomy 20, 21. Um, So the, the burial had to happen very immediately after someone died. And immediately after that, the family would separate themselves from society and there would be a mourning period for seven days. Uh, I forget the term for that, Shiva or something yeah. Yeah, that's it, yeah. And then after that, there was a 30-day mourning period, which we should probably know the terms for that. Um, Shloshim. Shloshim, is that? Is that yeah, yeah. Mourning, is that, that's usually what, how it's written, yeah. And that would be a 30-day period. Now, during the first seven days, there was to be no contact with the outside world. It was a very internal grieving period. During the 30-day period, there was slightly more relaxed, but still not supposed to attend social events and do those sorts of things. I'll, I'll give you some, some text from the sources at the time in a moment. Um, and obviously for the direct children of the deceased, the mourning period, yes, you had the seven days, yes, you had the 30-day period, but you actually had an entire year until what they would call the practice of second burial happened. And this was the time when, uh, at the initial death, the body was placed in the family crypt or tomb, um, usually on a shelf or in a pit, or with just quite a few different things that archaeologists have found. And then the flesh would be allowed to decay. And then it said 12 months later, people would go back in, they would take the bones, and then they would be placed usually in an ossuary or slightly different things are used, but a bone, a bone box at that time. And that's the practice of second burial. And that would take place usually after, tw- after 12 months. Um, let's read just a passage from the Jerusalem Talmud here. It says this, When the flesh had wasted away, the bones were collected and placed in chests. You can see, uh, um, I believe that's actually the Caiaphas ossuary there. It's just a a common uh, bone box. On that day the sun mourned, but the following day he was glad because his forebearers rested from judgment. And I believe it's this background that we need to have in our heads. And for some people this background is probably they understand this, but for a Western audience where the funeral and the the mourning period is very different in that sense, this is what we need to have in our mind when we come to Matthew chapter 8. You see, the fact that the man is actually out and able to have conversations and engaging with the disciples, most scholars assume this actually implies, who who take this interpretation, that the seven-day period and the 30-day period are actually already over at this stage Um, because he's out and he's mixing in society and he's able to have these sorts of discussions with people again. So when he's saying in Matthew 8, allow me to go bury my father, it's not actually that the father has maybe just died or is in the process of of dying, and which is why Jesus' reply seems so harsh. It's more likely that the father has already died, the family have been through the initial mourning period, and he is saying, yes, but we haven't 
done the second burial yet, which is obviously the son's responsibility, and so I need to wait. So what he's actually asking for is anything up to an 11-month hiatus on following Jesus, which is why you can see it puts a slightly different colour on the interpretation of this text. That's a much longer period. Now, the tradition, again, we'll just read it from this tractate here. It says, uh, Rabbi Eliezer, son of Zadok, said, Thus spoke the father at the time of his death, My son, bury me at first in a foss. I think that means like a pit or something like that. Uh, in the course of time, collect my bones and put them in an ossuary, but do not gather them with your own hands. And so this is really indication that it's the son's responsibility to be around for the second burial, which again is really, I think, the background to Matthew chapter 8 that we have here. Um, he needed to be around to do that. Now, like I said, this is a, a long period. It could have been 11 months. And you know how Jesus's ministry, we had three and a half years, didn't we? A very quick su succession. He's face to face with the Lord right now. This 11 month hiatus is not really something that Jesus is going to ask here. Um, now, that's not the only reason, though. So gathering, if you read the Old Testament and a lot of ancient Near Eastern literature, you'll often see the phrase, he was gathered to his fathers. When you, and we kind of just see it as a euphemism for they died when they went to be with their ancestors, something like that. Some people assume that's a much more literal phrase, and, and it, it indicates the practice of this whole burial ritual, because in these family tombs, there would already have been either other family members who are still in the 11, 12-month period on the shelves, and then for ancestors who have died more previously in different bone boxes around the tombs which is why when they discover these tombs, there are often many, many bone boxes in them. It's a family tomb. That's the whole idea. So Jesus' response is both ironic in the sense when he says, allow the dead to bury their dead. He's not referring to the, the unsaved family members in it, as a very sort of Western evangelical mindset might put it, all the unsaved family members. They weren't really even thinking like that. He's actually making an ironic statement referring to the other dead in the tomb, the ancestors who have already died, let them take care of their own dead. Now, of course, that's impossible. They're already dead. And that's the point of his statement here. It's, it's like many times Jesus makes these slightly ironic, hyperbolic statements that dramatically emphasize a point. And we'll, we'll go into this a little bit more because there's another reason uh, why I think he's being so, uh, not dismissive, but, but he is making a point here. Um, if you track back through some of the literature at this time, you'll find out that although the practice is ancient, rooted deeply in, in ancient Near Eastern culture, by New Testament times, the second burial ritual had actually taken on a slightly more theological purpose. And the teaching was that the decaying of the flesh in the tomb was actually connected to the sins of the flesh, almost like a slight sort of, if we could say, purgatory sort of thing to this, that the actual decaying of the flesh uh, was atoning for the sins, so there was a theological purpose there. And the final stage of that atonement for the sins of the flesh would have been when the son comes in and finally gets puts them in the bone box and moves them on. Now, another reason I think Jesus is making this statement is because he's completely undercutting that belief. That was actually a corruption to the burial practice and the beliefs that came in at a slightly later date. So with those two elements in mind, now we can't, you know, when we look at history, we can look at sources and we can speculate and make conjectures. We can't definitely say this is that in these sorts of situations. But when you come to Matthew 8 and you see those statements and the evangelical world generally, as I say, that's why it's in all of these hard sayings of Jesus, 
book type things, they see it simply as Jesus not allowing someone to bury their very recently deceased father. Whereas you come to it with a background here and you say this is, this is not what's going on at all. This is a man asking for up to 11 months burial practice, maybe may continuing in a tradition that's actually become corrupted and Jesus is completely undercutting that. He is making a point that the urgency to follow me is very urgent right now. You need to be a disciple, but it's a different flavor um, to what we usually get in Bible commentary. So that that's just one example. I'm going to give you a couple more. Um, I'm assuming we've got time. Just let me. I don't get to do this too often, so just let me do this. <laughs> the Roman triumphal processions. So we've seen a sort of a Jewish practice now that enlightens the text. Now let's look at a Roman practice that helps us understand some of Paul's uh, language in well, in Colossians here, but you'll also find similar things in, in some of his other epistles. Uh, so Colossians 2.15, it says, Disarming the rulers and authorities, he has made a public disgrace of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So the Romans, and I know you've looked at the concept of honour and shame uh, in this world at this time. So the Romans were the, you know, the chief of this because it was all about the glory of Rome and the shame of anyone who would be defeated by Rome. But you didn't have emails or any way to very quickly announce any victory or anything that could give glory to Rome. So what they used to do whenever they had taken over an area, whenever they had subjugated a people or defeated a people, they would have one of these victory processions. It was a great honour for the general to be able to lead these victory processions back to the populace. And what they would do is they'd have all the soldiers involved in the battle, and then they'd have all the, the soldiers in the middle carrying treasure and looted material from the people they've beaten. Then after that, they would have the slaves, the captives that they've taken from the subjugated people. And then at the very back of the procession line, they would usually have, if they hadn't, hadn't been killed, the high-ranking officials and the king. Right at the back, the place of the most shame. And in that culture, that was just utter, utterly shameful. It's a complete public display of their defeat. To use language like this in the Rome, in a Greco-Roman context in the world, would have been they would have known exactly what Paul is getting at here, and he is making a big point. Let me. Um, do you remember in 70 AD, obviously, when Titus came and he, he ransacked the temple in Jerusalem? And you have the Arch of Titus, which is in Rome today, which is that sculpted relief. I'll show it to you here where you see the, the, tre the temple treasures being looted. Let me read to you Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. This is from the Amplified Version. Now, I'm generally not a big fan of paraphrases and, and those sorts of things, but this is actually uh, right, right spot on here. Look how it puts it. It says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, and you can even translate this, when he had removed the armour from them. And there is a translation that puts it like that. So this, again, is leading you to the practice of humiliating the captive soldiers, removing their armor, which was, you know, underneath was just the, the undergarments, which is dishonor, and their swords and their weapons. And then it says, the, the amplified bit, those supernatural forces of evil operating against us. He made a public example of them, and look how it puts it here, exhibiting them as captives in his triumphal procession, having triumphed over them through the cross. So what Paul is saying here is that Jesus as God and on the cross did exactly what a Roman general would do with a triumphal procession, but it was in a spiritual sense. And it was you know, that moment when Jesus was on the cross, he was actually the victor at that time, leading the triumphal procession 
and it was the principalities and powers who maybe thought they were getting the victory at that point, they are the ones actually being humiliated and led in triumphal procession. Okay, and that, that is the background to Paul's text here. And that, for me, this is one of those ones where I just love things like this, because you can read Colossians, I don't know how many times I've read Colossians, and you just miss that if you're coming to it in a devotional sense. You might get some of the basic truths, yes, Jesus won, that's great, but you don't get the sort of the 3D concept of um, what the, how rich the Bible can be and how useful this historical background is. Now, there's just one more I want to share with you. And I'm sharing this with you as my own conjecture. So this is something that I'm working on in my own sort of studies at the moment. And this has to do with anointing and kingship. So this is, again, we're going to actually look. So we've seen a, a sort of Jewish practice that illuminates the text. We've seen a Roman practice that illuminates the text. And now I want to actually go back and look at an Old Testament practice that illuminates the text. And this is anointing and kingship. So you'll find throughout uh, the whole Old Testament, when a king is uh, anointed, a prophet would come to him and they would anoint him for kingship. Now, this happened with Saul. Remember the first Saul? It was uh, Samuel, wasn't it, I believe? And then Solomon um, yeah, the prophet Nathan, I believe, was it, who anointed Solomon? can't remember exactly. And then David, they were all anointed for kingship by a prophet. Um, and we actually still have this association in the UK. I don't know if, if you've ever seen a coronation of a British monarch. So there's a part in the coronation ceremony. I, I, I brought some coronation Bibles with me that actually have the text of the whole ceremony in. But... Uh, Queen Elizabeth was the last, 1953. At part of the service, they play a tune from Handel's Messiah. Handel's Messiah is the famous, uh, the oratorio. And there's a song called Zadok the Priest uh, in that part. And the, the first line reads, Zadok the Priest and Nathan the Prophet anointed Solomon the King and all the people rejoiced, rejoiced, rejoiced. And it, it builds up to a massive crescendo. They play this bit during one particular part of the ceremony where the queen is actually anointed. She's taken behind a veil and she's anointed for kingship. And this is just the, because obviously the sort of Judeo-Christian roots of our culture, tracing back this principle that I'm teaching about that anointing and kingship were always associated with a true monarch. Now, you see this with Saul, Solomon and David. You do see it, you see it later with King Jehu too. But for a lot of, when you had the split of the kingdoms and a lot of the you know, walking in the ways of the kings of the northern kingdom, and you don't get these sorts of things all the time. But for the, for the first, you know, for the united kingdom, you definitely did get this. Now, I was studying, we've been teaching through two kings at church, which is why this first started getting in my mind. Now, we worship someone who claimed to be king of the Jews. He was the Messiah also, that means the anointed one. When was he anointed? By a prophet as a king. If this is a principle that we see and there's one that is assumingly biblically valid. So this got me thinking. And now, as I was researching this, I actually found out this is a very common modern Jewish objection to the Messiahship of Jesus. You read to you a book by Asher Norman. Some of you may be familiar um, with, with his work. So he, I think he's a Jewish lawyer. He, he's a very uh, polemicist, anti-Christian polemicist, and he's quite formidable in some respects from what I've heard. This is from his award-winning book, 26 Reasons Why Jews Don't Believe in Jesus. This was one of his objections. He says, the word Messiah means anointed with oil. All kings, high priests and prophets in the Jewish Bible are described as messiahs because they were all anointed with oil into God's service. Many Jewish prophets were told that a particular messiah 
the Messiah Ben David would appear and fulfill six major prophecies that will lead the world into the special messianic era. And it says, Jesus may have claimed to be king. However, Jesus was never anointed king of Israel by a prophet. Therefore, he failed to fulfill this messianic criteria and is therefore eliminated from messianic consideration. So this is actually an issue that's been uh, thought about. Um, I haven't seen huge amounts of responses to this particular question because generally, let's be honest, it's not a particular question that a lot of evangelical scholarship is looking at. We have the clear pronouncement that he was king of the Jews in the New Testament. For many people, that's enough. But let me just, again, this is just my conjecture, so I'm sharing it with you to kind of do with it what you will. Um, let's just think a little bit about what we're saying here in the Old Testament context, that when we see like Saul or David in the Old Testament being anointed with oil, that is an external act, yes, but it's not too much of an extrapolation to say that it's actually representing something else. Like the oil is representative of something else, usually an internal truth. So the anointing at the time was that they were being set apart for kingly service, and this usually meant that they would be the anointing of the Spirit. Um, the Old Testament does have an acknowledgement of the Spirit of God, and you get validation from this when David, remember, he take not your Holy Spirit from me in Psalm 51. Isaiah 61, which is a messianic uh, text, it says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. So again, you have this concept of the spirit and the anointing at this, you know, throughout the Old Testament, not just the New Testament concept. So what I'm saying is that it wasn't the picture of the oil, it wasn't the actual physical oil necessarily, that was preparing these people for kingship. It was that act, but also what it represented more, which was the Lord uh, anointing this, this person to be king. Um, the, re the deeper reality of that is the, the power of the Spirit being with them. So coming to Jesus, I was thinking, when is an event that you see a prophet present and you see an anointing of Jesus? There's only one event in the New Testament that I can really think of that does that, and that is the baptism of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 3. Let's turn there, please, and read this, because I think this provides a much deeper understanding of what is happening at this text. So let's, let's actually read, I'll read this whole, this whole portion for you here. It says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, it's important that John the Baptist was here. Because what does it say of John was the last of the prophets, of that, that school that we see in the Old Testament, the sons of the prophets, the school of the prophets. It's considered that he was really the last of those people. So what I'm, my conjecture is that what if the baptism of Jesus was more than what most people just say it is? Now, this is a question that's often asked. I've had this on a live Q&A before. Why was Jesus baptized? Because in the New Testament, for a new covenant believer, uh, particularly in the Western world, baptism is you know, except you've repented of your sins and you're being death, burial and resurrection, your communion with Christ. 
And if that's how you're looking at it, it does seem a bit odd that Jesus would be baptized. Now, the response usually is that, well, in sort of a more broader Jewish context, baptism is, can be just an identification with a message. And what Jesus is doing here is he's giving his authority and identification to John's message of repentance at this time. And yes, that's true. But for me, I think this is such an important text that it's just a little underwhelming, that explanation. That it's just simply Jesus just identifying with the message of John the Baptist. But it seems obvious, you know, John the Baptist was the one preparing the way. Of course, he was going to identify with his message. So it doesn't seem to be giving it the full depth of what he's saying here. So what I'm saying is that I think the baptism of Jesus here is something much more than just mere identification. I think this is the actual anointing of Jesus for kingship. Because you may think, well, yes, but then he was crucified. and you... This is exactly the pattern we see. You remember with David, with Jehu and all these people, they were anointed before they were actually made king. You remember that? There was a period. They were anointed while there was still a usurper on the throne at that point. And I think this fits the pattern of Jesus. He was anointed for kingship here. He had other ministry to do. And when you get to the book of Revelation, some of you may be doing a class on Revelation, Revelation 11 and these passages, it talks of a time when Jesus will come back and once again there will be a usurper on the throne. But we know that the real anointing has already been on Jesus. And it says in Revelation 11, this is when the kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of our God. And it's that moment that he comes and takes the throne. Fitting, for me, the typology of when you have the anointing in a period of great, a period of uh, whatever, until taking the throne. So I'm, my conjecture is that understanding this anointing and kingship uh, and a prophet uh, context gives us a much better understanding of what is going on. And I think it's true because how many times do you see the heavens open than a voice of God in the New Testament? Not very many. Um, so something very significant must be happening here, happening here, much more significant than just Jesus identifying with the message, because you actually see the Holy Spirit, which I believe in you know, the case of Saul and David was the symbolized by the oil running over the head. But here it's actually the, the Holy Spirit coming down as a dove and resting upon him. And then John, the prophet, is kind of almost pushed to the side. He's officiating, but it's actually the voice of the father that announces, this is my son. And remember, we must the, the context, you must kind of have the Old Testament background. So in Deuteronomy chapter 10, you get that famous revelation of God where it says, you know, the heavens and the earth belong to you, Lord. You are the, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and the King of kings. So for the king of kings to audibly say, this is my son, a son of a king, is the heir to the throne, is the next king. So all of these elements in this, pas in this baptism of Jesus, for me, all fit a, a royal anointing that is happening here. Um, as far as I'm aware, in any of the commentaries I've read, I haven't really seen anyone going down that route. And for me, that helps answer the, the, uh, the comment from Asher Norman there that this never actually happened. I think I see that there happening. So they're the examples that I wanted to share with you. Anyway, I hope they're sort of illuminating and you can see there's just a minute I could do, you know, weeks just showing you the, these sorts of examples. They're, they're really, really fascinating. Um, this is the this is why we study the New Testament background. Sorry, Randy, did you have something to say? Yeah, just yeah. To, to fortify your mm. argument there, Tommy. In the case of Saul's anointing, uh, Samuel says when you leave here, three things are going to happen to you. And one of the things that happen is he's seized by the Spirit. 
and he prophesies. Mm -hmm. uh, right after David's anointing, it said that the Spirit came upon David, and the next verse says, and it departed from Saul. So in, all, in those cases of anointing, you also have the reception of the gift of the Spirit mm. coming upon the future king. Yeah, great. So that kind of fits in fits in with what I'm saying there. So I must write. I must. I need to put all that down on paper at some point. But that that's where I am at the moment. Um, so they're the examples. Does anyone have any comments or, or questions or anything they want to say about that? Um, just a question: the first one about the um, burial, like from a commentary that I heard, was that it was a common phrase used to. postpone what you should do, but like his possibility that his dad wasn't even dead yet. Um, did you come across that at all? Yeah, that, let me say that you'll find that or variations of that in most sort of commentaries. And, and, and I believe it's very much the, the concept where they're conjecturing because they don't know. And this is what makes Jesus' statement, again, seem like really hard because the dad's either very newly deceased or he may still be alive and suffering from something where they know he's going to die. In which case, if the son is saying, please, my dad's ill, let me, you know, I have to, I can't leave now. I have to bury him. That's my duty, my honor. Why on earth? It makes Jesus' statement even more harsh. But I, I just don't see that that's a necessity from the text there. It's, it's a conjecture that I think is driven by sort of what we would have in our minds when we're thinking about a death and a burial and a funeral practice, a very sort of quick and succinct process. I just think it makes more sense in Jesus's words that, he, that the other sort of interpretation I shared. But again, like I say, you can't really be overly dogmatic on these things, but I just think, yeah. Um, don't both interpretations, though, don't they both basically say that, like, when people would try to delay following Jesus and, like, try to make excuses beforehand? Because whether or not his father's dead or not, it's still being like, let me do this other thing before I follow Jesus. And he's like, follow me now. Yeah, you're, you're right. And, and the, the commonality of interpretation is basically Jesus is emphasizing the urgency of discipleship and following him. Um, so that, that is true. Both interpretations. Again, this is why it's one of these issues. It doesn't change the doctrine. It doesn't give it, you know, but we're just looking at the fuller picture of understanding and immersing ourselves in that world. I think it does help explain why Jesus's response, you know, is not asking them to not bury their father, which would, in their mind, probably break the fifth command, you know, the commandment to honour your parents. It's a slightly just different slant and a fuller picture, I would say, of what's happening there. But, but you're right. The, the point, the ultimate takeaway from the passage is the urgency of discipleship. Don't delay following me. But it does just take away sort of the slight theological element and the, the conclusion there. But yeah, I mean, these are the things that you'll see debated. Yeah, yeah there's a few thoughts about the anointing. Mm -hmm. So one, right in Isaiah, it says that he speaks about him um, starting his like um, ministry, you know, and saying that God has anointed me. Yeah, yeah. So I think just also just the fact that it says God, God anointed me. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that, you know, the, the Messiah, like God anoints him, so the Holy Spirit coming down on him is from God. It's not like a prophet anointing him. Um, just one thing. And on the transfiguration, also God says the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and just having that change of appearance, I think, is also very distinct from any other any other case you've had in any other place. I know it's not the, the exact anointing, but... It, I mean, that is distinct, yeah, yeah. Strong. And, and that's... Um, 
kind of when I said, obviously, John is there at that point, offic- yeah. almost officiating. But when that happens, he's kind of, it's not about him doing the anointing. Yeah. That is when the father yeah. sort of take, takes over here. And, yeah. and that's why, I mean, we can say there's a pattern of anointing and kingship, but we all know the anointing of the Messiah is very unique in, in lots of different right. ways. Um, but it still follows the pattern, I think, in, right. that, in that sense. But And just a thought, because Moses wasn't, wasn't anointed, but but he says, you know, one will come that's like me, but greater. You know? So that's, I'm just saying, it might strengthen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, if we, yeah, I mean, we can have so much fun with that. Um, because Christ, obviously, was prophet, priest, and king. Yeah. So he, he kind of had lots of familiarization with people like Moses, with the priesthood also, yeah. and, and with the line of the kings too. So there's yeah. things we could trace down that would, would do yeah. all of that. Yeah, it'd be great fun. Another time, another time. Um, should we have a break now, Randy? Is that are we quite there? Or? Yeah, yeah. Because we're, we're, we're kind of we're, close, we're so about we, to start a new section. We're going to take uh, ten minutes and come back at twenty after. Okay. Yeah, great. Thanks. It's not the same thing, but you have Mary with the physical anointing. Yeah, yeah. On the feet, you do get that. Yeah, so that that, that is true. So I mean, anointing is a thing you could kind of trace throughout the, the whole the whole Bible, but. Um, and this is why you know, in the Revelate in the book of Revelation you, you have these these unusual characters, the two witnesses again, who, who seem to be spoken about like they're back into the line of the prophets. Like you know, it's very unusual that you get these, these parallels again sort of coming. Um, quite where to go with them, or, you know. I'm conge- I am conjecturing from it. I know that, but it's, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. But it doesn't just. I would expect that, especially like in Hebrews, at least saying something about the anointing. Like you would expect. It just being like one clear act of anointing, like why not, you know? And having yeah, that. yeah, it's true. Yeah, but, but okay. Cool. We'll pass the recording. I find it interesting as well that just after that, after the temptation, you have Okay, so let's shift gears now, and we'll talk just a little bit about the New Testament world. And again, I know you've already talked about some of these characters but we'll just briefly give a sketch just going to make it fresh in our minds as we go through and move on to looking at the the Sadducees and the Essenes in a bit more depth so this gives us a brief overview like the New Testament world was a a really a veritable feast of different nationalities and cultures and um, so you had Greek Greek culture in there you had Roman culture you had Jewish culture then you had sort of the religious elements of all of these different groups, the nationalist elements of all of these groups, and the political too. And oftentimes they mix and interchanged, um, much like our world today, really, in many facts. But th- this was sort of what we had uh, at this time. Now, Josephus, um, assuming you're all familiar with who, who Josephus is, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> he lists three main religious groups um, of this time. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and he lists the Essenes too. He also makes mention of the Zealots. Um, so let's just have a brief discussion as we see some of these as we go through. Um, but all of those groups generally, well, the first three anyway, were they came under the banner of Judaism at that time. So although they had differences in what they believed, uh, they generally were classed uh, under, that, under that category. But then you also had uh, the Zealots, so the Zealots were much more of a sort of, we, we would say, a, a sort of a political nationalist movement today, that their sole purpose was really overthrow 
of the Roman occupation that they could say at that time. They could have members from all different groups, so from Pharisees or Sadducees, you could still join the, the, zealot, the zealots cause. They didn't really care where you came from as long as you ascribed to their, their cause. Now, there's a lot of talk about them. They were often, you know, they agreed with the use of violence to overthrow occupation. And they also, you know, at times agreed with violence towards their own Jewish uh, people who were collaborating, who they considered to be collaborators with the Romans at that time. That was not off the table. So they were quite a, a serious movement um, going back, particularly with, you know, from the Maccabees through the Hasmoneans and all into this time that we have now. So they're the Zealots. And then you also have another group called the Herodians. You'll find these ones, uh, the Zealots and the Herodians. You'll find both of them in Scripture. You remember, sorry, or back on the Zealots, Jesus called one of these people to be his disciple, didn't he? Simon, Simon the Zealot. So this, this is his background, um, and I think that's just fascinating. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we go through. So the Herodians. Now these were, well, I know you've talked about Herod. These were a group of people who were basically loyal to the Herodian dynasty. Um, some people considered them nothing more than really Hellenistic Jews who ascribed to that sort of a culture. Uh, they were willing to work with the governments, usually for power and political expediency. And usually they would be set up against the Pharisees. The Herodians and the Pharisees did not generally agree on much. However, there is one thing that we see them able to collaborate on in the New Testament, and that is um, <laughs> killing Jesus. That's the, that's the one the thing they have in common here. Remember in Mark 3.6, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians. Now, we just read over that like these people got that's a huge statement that's being made right there because the pharisees and the herodians generally would not plot about much they were very opposed the herodians were loyal to this dynasty and the pharisees you know disagreed with them strongly on those issues but i think both of the positions were probably threatened by the ministry of jesus so it was this element that they're able to come together and plot to get rid of jesus you remember in matthew 22 um Teacher, uh, is it loyal to pay taxes to Caesar? That, that, that famous question is where we get one of those great responses by Jesus. You know, pick up the coin, whose image on it? Uh, give Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. Um, but it, it says it was the Pharisees along with the Herodians. And, and I think it was probably one of the Herodians that asked that question. Because a, a question about loyalty to the government and taxes has all the smackings of a Herodian sort of question because they know that if he was to make a mistake on that area, that information would get straight back to the top echelons of the power makers and the, the law courts at that time. So I think that was probably them asking that question. But again, we see Jesus is not fooled by this. He gives that excellent statement <clears throat> and moves on. So that's the Herodians. And then we also have obviously just the Roman culture, which brought with it the cult of Caesar worship. Started back with Augustus, wasn't it? Like he, when he deified himself. So there was this element that the Caesars and these people were to be worshipped as Lord. And that whole thing plays out throughout the New Testament. Along with this, the sort of the Greco-Roman world, you had the, the Greek pantheon that was sort of renamed for the Roman pantheon of, of different gods. Um, so all sorts of, you know, like the old classics, like Zeus and all these sorts of people were around. And then on top of that, you had... The Gnostics, officially a little bit later, but the early trappings of it, the mystery cults, you could call them, call them like some of the Roman mystery cults, like they had Mithraism. And that. Like, just as an aside, I, I was doing some work with Museum of the Bible last year, 
and they took me to a museum in London. So we, they just they didn't tell me where we were going. We were, we were there just to get ideas. They took me, and we arrived. At, it was in the capital district, the, the financial district, and it was Blomberg Towers. So it's a massive building. It's like nothing to do with anything. It's just Blomberg, the, the huge company, um, you know, businessman going in and out. But underneath, you go into that. You go underneath this this Blomberg building. They have an ancient excavated temple from the days of Londinium, the Roman city of Londinium. And they have an, uh, a Mithraism temple that's been excavated in their basement. And it's done like a museum. So they have like lights and they project it up to make a 3D because it's only the very lower levels of it. Fascinating to watch. But this was the sort of thing that was spread around in the Roman world. So you had all of these things mixing into that too. So just an absolute religious quagmire of so many different things. And this for me, again, I find fascinating because I do a lot, if I'm speaking on apologetics or a lot of times you're speaking in, in my world anyway about, you know, it's either atheism or Christianity. They're sort of the two options that most people have. So one of the critiques that people from, they're usually asking from a 21st century rationalist point of view, and they say, well, Jesus never said he was God. And you know, that, that's the only option for them. You just come and say you're God. And, and it always makes me laugh that because they're clearly asking that from a 21st century post-enlightenment mindset where it's just so clear-cut, God or not God. But when you, when you understand this here and you see for Jesus just to come along and say he was God would have just absolutely been a nonsense. It wouldn't really have meant anything to anyone. It would be like when Paul, you remember in Acts 17 when Paul goes to preach to the Athen philosophers. Um, you like when, when Peter's preaching in Pentecost and he's preaching to the Jews and he's using scripture and showing who, you know, he's the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies, they all understood. But when Paul goes to the Athenians, these pagan philosophers, very much like, you know, a room full of Richard Dawkins, and he starts preaching, what is it they say? They, you read it in Acts, it's quite a funny line. What does this idle babbler say to us? What does he wish to say? He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, plural. So that, that was the mindset of people who didn't have that background. So for Jesus just to simply come, that's what we just made. It's just a nonsense question, really, I always find. What Jesus did do was much more developed and powerful when you understand it against the backdrop of what he was dealing with. But, but that's an aside. So this is what we have here. Um, and another thing I like about this is, so you, you think of the disciples. You had, you had Matthew, or you know, you had a tax collector, someone who was genuinely considered to be a collaborator with the Roman government there. Um, and then you had a zealot pushed into the same very close-knit group of people. Now, again, we, we just read over that. We don't understand. But think how dramatic that must have been because a zealot quite happily probably would have been used, you know, a collaborator and a zealot. You know, you leave those two alone. One of the, you know, two men standing, only one might come out sort of. That, that would have been the attitude in these sorts of times. So I just think it's... Uh, amazing that we, we see these people brought together by Jesus. And it, it explains because um, there was a much more sort of less of an individualistic thinking back in those, in those days. And you still find this in parts of the world today. But, you know, when, you, when you, you hear the disciples and it says they were arguing about who was greater, like maybe this wasn't just simply saying, oh, my name's John, I'm way better than you, Peter. Jesus obviously thinks I'm better. This may have been a much more sort of broad category as you still had these people pulled from different segments of society, from zealots, from tax collectors, from the people of the land, from working class people, all being brought together. And it may be that they were actually more arguing about their collective backgrounds and which background was more righteous and which ones were more horrible. 
uh, probably sheds a bit more light on those sorts of discussions rather than just a very prideful statement about me as a person is better than you as a person, which is often how it's interpreted. So we, we have to bring in these backgrounds when we get there. But let's talk about the Sadducees a little bit. I know you've dealt with the Pharisees, so we'll talk about the Sadducees a bit. They were one of the main Jewish groups, really from about 150 BCE to about 70, uh, well, to the destruction of the temple, really, is when people trace their disappearance. They were the main opposition to the Pharisees. The problem with the historians have, obviously, history is always a selection of data and you arrange it and you try and understand it as best you can. We have no Sadducean texts. We have no writings from the Sadducees really themselves. So what we learn about them is always written by their opponents, generally, which means it's quite often overly polemical. It's, you know, it's not particularly flattering. I'll give you a few examples of these. Did they write their own stuff? Um, they probably did. We have some references to like the Book of Codes that they had and things like that, but we don't actually have any any of, the, uh, any of those materials now. Um, so in the Babylonian Talmud, uh, it says this: When a Pharisee teachers, when Pharisee teachers were discussing whether a good person could become an evil person, the example that was used was of a Pharisee who went over to the Sadducees, and that was quoted as proof that a man could become evil. So you, it just gives you an insight into the, the general feeling towards the Sadducees at this time. Um, the main source that we really have for learning about them is Josephus that we have. And again, he's not particularly uh, friendly um, to them. This is one quote from Jewish War. He says, The behaviour of the Sadducees towards one another is in some degree wild, and their conversation with those that are of their own party is as barbarous as if they were strangers to them. Again, not particularly flattering. You can see Josephus's view, and these are the sort of comments that we have going on. The origin of the Sadducees is, again, no one can really agree on, on the origin of the Sadducees. It's kind of shroud, shrouded in the mystery of history right now, um, but they seem to go kind of back into the second century BC. They were generally not popular with the masses. The Pharisees had the, the, the people, and the Sadducees were generally the the more elite, the aristocrats, the wealthy, the power brokers um, of the world. Um, so they held the positions of power. Most scholars presume they, they had sort of the temple and the priesthood under their control, and the Sanhedrin was pretty much run, although there were Pharisees involved with it. There was the Sanhedrin that had the, the, the you know, fuller vote, I'd imagine, and that sort of thing. So that was, and again, you see this again represented in Josephus. Let's read this quote here. Concerning these things, it is that great disputes and differences have arisen among them, while the Sadducees are able to persuade none but the rich, and have not the populace um, obsequious obedience or giving deference to them, but the Pharisees have the multitude on their side. So what he's basically saying is the Pharisees were able to um, get the mass of the population behind, and the Sadducees, they could just persuade the rich. But in these sorts of uh, cultures... If you could have the power brokers, that, that you know, if you could get the rich, there was a huge disparity between rich and poor uh, in these days. So those sorts of things made a big difference. Much of the priesthood was made up of the Sadducees. Um, we see that cropping up. Just in throwaway statements throughout the Bible, I'll read Acts chapter 4, verse 1. It says, while Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the commander of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. Now, the, the, to, to lump those people together, particularly the temple guard and the Sadducees, kind of implies that they were probably work, you know, the Sadducees had a lot of power within the temple guard, which meant that you kind of had control over a lot of things. 
They also regulated relationship with the Romans, with the ruling government. Um, and this meant that this is probably why they didn't have the, the people behind them, because a lot of people would just assume they're, again, nothing more than just Hellenists, compromises, and you know their loyalties lie in money and power that the Roman government could give them at this time. Um, and most people assume, or a lot of people would say that they, they corrupted the priesthood. They ran a corrupt priesthood, which is why people like the Essenes rejected the priesthood and they moved out and they did their own thing. We'll talk about them in a little bit more. But the priesthood was critical because if you know basically that was like if you controlled the priesthood, you that was it. You know, you you had a monopoly on that sort of thing. And you control everything within the temple. Most people assume because they controlled the temple guard, they had the priesthood and they were the ones making the money, they were the ones who were certainly remember when Jesus at the beginning of his ministry came along and overturned the tables. Most people assume that that would have been the Sadducees. That was one of the rackets that the Sadducees had for making money at that time. And it was them that he, this is why they hate Jesus so much throughout the Bible that you see, because in the, one of the first things he did was to deal with that issue right there. Um, but it was the high priest really that was important. So I'm not going to go into it in huge amounts of depth because it's a, it's a history of the high priest is a, a long and quite confusing history. But if you go back to sort of the end, like the Hasmoneans, they call them, which is the, the last sort of remaining from the Maccabean line, um, when they ended up being pre, they put themselves in the priesthood, and then people like Antiochus and then Herod, the Romans got involved, and they would basically put their man as the priesthood. And it, it got to the point where the, the, pre, the high priesthood position was basically being sold to the highest bidder at that time. That was how it operates, which means you got people there who were not qualified to be there, who shouldn't have been there, who didn't know the rituals and the traditions. And it was, again, you could see how easily this was a money-making thing. Um, it said that in the first temple period, so this, the 400 years really of the first temple, there were only 18 high priests, which shows you that the high priests were supposed to be obviously a lot of a very long-term position in that sense. For the second temple, which was, again, about 400 years, there were over 300 high priests. So this is you a know, very high turnover. And then this represents what was happening in this world, um, which is with the high priest of being sold and used for the highest bidder. And again, it gives you a lot of understanding why Jesus had the reaction that he did when he came into the temple. And it helps you understand the Pharisees in, in some respect. And also it'll help us understand the Essenes a little bit as we get into them. Um, some of the beliefs of the Sadducees, again, it's very hard to know uh, for sure because we don't have much written about them, but there's quite a few rabbinic texts that, that mention them not believing in the resurrection. We have a, a similar verse in the New Testament here in the book of Acts, which says, Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees, this is the Sanhedrin, and other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believed in all these things. So we get a little glimpse into what, I mean, scholars are honestly, scholars debate so much what it means that they didn't believe in angels because it, they didn't accept the, the oral law and the traditions of the Pharisees. They just accepted the first five books of Moses. But you read the first five books of Moses and you kind of see that angels or messengers are quite common in there. So did they, you know, did they really not believe that, or what was their position? I'm yet to really find an explanation that 
that adequately explains that, to be to be frank. So we can't just have to go. There was obviously some way or some group of them. Um, it may be something very similar to what we would call liberal Christianity. Like we get a lot of people who are pastors and leaders. They run seminaries. Um, they're teaching the Bible. They know huge amounts of stuff about Greek and Hebrew and New Testament and stuff like that. But they don't actually believe the resurrection happened. Like it could be something similar to that. I don't. I don't. I don't know. But that that's one of their beliefs. And Paul here, obviously knowing about this disagreement, uses it very skillfully to sort of start a, an internal sort of argument and have everyone focus on that. And he he just sort of slips away. Very clever use of um, <laughs> use of the time there. So to be honest, as far as the Sadducees go, that is the the bulk. And again, I have really truncated it to you. That is the bulk of the historical material that we know about them. They were hugely influential because they had the, the powers, their beliefs. I mean, there were a few other beliefs that, that, that we could look at, but they're not really, they don't really affect our interpretation of the Bible in any way. Most people assume that when the temple was done away with, that was it. And you can kind of see why, if their whole power structure was based around having those offices and that relationship with the Roman government when the Jewish war, the Great Jewish War started, obviously those relationships all got soured and then the means of their production gone and they just sort of disappeared really. There's no record of what happened to them after that. So that, I mean, that's the Sadducees. Does anyone have any, anything they want to add or comments on, on them? We'll spend a bit more time on the Essenes because we know a little bit more about them now. No? Okay, great. So, the Essenes. And the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, <laughs> there is a debate among scholars whether the Essenes are the community that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'll just let you know that that's an ongoing debate. Um, however, the vast majority of people are, are happy to accept that the, the, the Essenes were the people who inhabited Qumran and gave us the scrolls. And, I, and I'm going to just teach in that manner um, for that now. But just to so say, you know, there, there is debate about that still. So. Um, they're not really mentioned in the New Testament, not like the Herodians or the Zealots. We get a few references to them, and definitely not like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, but since we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we do know a lot more about them, about their beliefs, and about what they were doing. So again, they were a Jewish sect, but they existed generally from somewhere in the 2nd century BC up until the 1st century BC. So quite sort of contemporary with the Pharisees in that regard. But we do have a few mentions of them by other historical figures. So let's, this is one by Philo, writing uh, about, about 20 BC, I believe. I can't remember exactly. Um, but this is from his book, his tract, Every Good Man is Free. Uh, he says this, There is a portion of those people called Essenes, in number somewhat more than 4,000 in my opinion, who derive their name from their piety, though not according to any accurate form of the Greek dialect because they are above all men devoted to the service of God, not sacrificing living animals, but studying rather to preserve their own minds in a state of holiness and purity. Um, so this is just one historical reference to the Essenes. Now he puts the number at 4,000, and interestingly Josephus also puts the number at around 4,000. Um, and this is interesting because archaeologists who have excavated Qumran, I'm sure some of you have probably been to the Qumran, the, been there, um, there's about 150, 300 max people that would, would have lived in that community. So the Essenes weren't just isolated in Qumran. They actually had communities in amongst all, all the villages at that time. Um, but they had different orders. 
mean, you find this phrase, the order of the Essenes in some of the literature. So most people assume that the order, the, the people at Qumran were one of the sort of the orders of the Essenes who were very unique in some of the things that they believed. We'll talk about that a little bit as we go on. Again, the origins of these groups, as they often are with historical groups, very hard to pin. Some people say they descended from the Zadokite priesthood, the descendants of, of Zadok. Um, you, you can't confirm it, but, but that's what some people say. Um, but clearly, they were a monastic group, the Qumran element of them was anyway. They rejected the temple, probably because of, they saw it as corrupt, so they removed themselves down to the, to the desert. Their leader, we know a little bit about their origins from one of the scrolls. This is all we have. The leader of the group is referred to in the writings as the teacher of righteousness. And this indication to say in these groups that he was in fact a priest. And he was one who was around when the Hasmonean dynasty started installing people that they shouldn't have in the priesthood. And therefore, he said, right, rejected it, all is corrupt, and, they, and moved with his disciples away. And a lot of people say to Qumran, Pliny the Elder uh, mentions the group of the Essenes above the Dead Sea in that area. So that they do generally say that this is the Qumran area. So they, they, and a lot of the writings in the Dead Sea Scrolls make a big thing about this guy called the Teacher of Righteousness and this wicked evil priest that he was up against. And that probably seems to be generally where the origins of this group came from. Um, why did they go down to Qumran? Again, we find this in one of the scrolls that we will look at was called the Manual of Discipline or the Community Rules. It's really interesting to read, um, but it has this bit in it. It says, when these became members of the community in Israel, according to all these rules, they shall separate from the habitation of ungodly men and go into the wilderness to prepare the way of him. As it is written, prepare in the wilderness the way missing, but we know the text. Make straight in the desert a path for our God. This path is the study of the law which he commanded by the hand of Moses that they may do according to all that has been revealed from age to age. So you can see here the messianic nature of this. They were a very eschatological community. Okay, they, they actually believed that they were the ones moving into the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. And the way that they thought that was going to happen was because they were the purists who were going to bring back the pure adherence to the Mosaic law in that sense. So, so there was a huge emphasis on study and, you know, for our benefit, for manuscripts and scripture and all these sorts of things. They actually found a scripture, they have a whole scripture, a scriptorium at the, uh, like a manuscript production center at Qumran, which I think just emphasizes what they were getting at here. Um, we learn a lot about their way of life from this scroll, monastic community, strict membership requirements. People had to live for a year in one of the, the outside communities, adhere to all the rules before they'd be accepted into the Qumran community. Um, and on and on, there's lots of little things. They had voluntary poverty, shared property. Um, a lot of them were celibate. They denied the pleasures of the flesh, as they said. Um, on and on, these sorts of things go in this in this manuscript here. There is an interesting episode that Josephus records that may explain why Herod favoured the Essenes. It's said that Herod the Great, kind of 40 BC, kind of that and on from there. The Herods are really confused. You all know it's really easy to get confused with the Herods in the Bible and the, Herod, the Herodian family. It's very difficult. But Herod the Great, it said, had quite and was. He, he favoured the Essenes. Some people, some speculate that he even allowed them to have sort of like a tax-exempt status. And this is the only reason why people can really say why. 
And this comes from Josephus, and I think this is also the stories related in the Talmud too. Um, it says, there was one of these, one of the Essenes, whose name was Manachem. Someone can probably pronounce that better. Manachem. Manachem. Um, he not only conducted his life after an excellent manner, but he had the foreknowledge of future events given him by God. The story goes, this, once, this man once saw Herod when he was a child and going to school and saluted him as king of the Jews. And when he, Herod, was so fortunate as to be advanced to the dignity of king, he sent for Manachem. Now, whether this is a true story, we're not really sure, but in the light of anything else that explains this, that's, why, that's one reason that it's, it's in the historical records. Um, so this, these are the Essenes. Now, the Roman army likely destroyed their sort of monastic community at Qumran 68 AD and or onwards during that time when the sort of the storm clouds were gathering around Israel at that time, the first Jewish war. Um, now, during this time when they could obviously see you know, the end was nigh, they decided to collect all of their scrolls and all of their manuscripts and everything in their library and they put them in these big clay pots. Um, you've probably seen, I should have had a picture actually, but you've probably seen these clay pots. I know the Israeli muse museum has the sort of the top of, it's designed in the shape of the top of one of these pots. Um, and then they went and hid them in the surrounding caves um, all around Qumran. And really, there they stayed for the next 2,000 years, undiscovered. Now, I'll give you a brief introduction of how the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And I do mean brief because, it's again, it's one of those stories that could just go on and on. And it gets a little confusing and complicated. But the short of it is, the generally accepted story is that in 1947, there was a group of Bedouin shepherds who were out. They had their, their, their cattle and during that period at some point they were either looking for a lost sheep or they were just throwing stones into holes see if they could get them in the caves to amuse themselves and as they were doing that they heard a smash of pottery when one of the stones went in and from that they they went up to investigate some people say they didn't investigate at first it was about three days later they actually went back one of them went back and climbed in hoping i'm guessing to find actual treasure that they thought you know clay jars full of gold and whatever and all they found was these sort of very old wrapped up uh, scrolls amongst various bits of pottery and nothing particularly valuable in their eyes. But one of these young boys, his name was Muhammad, he did take one of these scrolls and he passed it on to a friend um, who was an antiquities dealer, uh, part, of a Coptic, part of the Coptic church, I believe, if I remember rightly. Um, and from then on, it gets very difficult to actually trace what happened because no one else really knew where the cave was. Um, no one exactly knew what these things were, so a few different people were brought in, but no one really with the expertise to know exactly. Um, during this time, the people who found the cave obviously kind of sussed that maybe these things were quite valuable, so they had people going back to the other caves. A lot of the scrolls were taken out and kind of disseminate. People were buying, you know, some of them were torn up and they were buying little pieces of things. Um, it wasn't really... Uh, until quite a few years later that, that an actual archaeological excavation got their hands on the scrolls. But what they did find, what those, shepherd, those Bedouin boys did find, is probably the greatest manuscript discovery in history, if not since the, the Cairo Geniza discovery sort of thing. But, you know, today it's given us so much wealth of information about the Bible and about the Essenes and history and that, and that culture at that time. Um, so it was, yeah, 1947 they were found. And remember, Israel it was the British mandate period at 1947. So, so travel was not, it wasn't as easy to get 
everywhere that you wanted, you, know, you can just have foreigners come in, archaeologists, and just go to this place and start taking things out. It was a bit more difficult than that. And then obviously, 1948, you had the Declaration of Independence, you had the, you know, the, the, the war that happened at that point, and then Kingdom of Jordan after that got involved, the War of Independence and everything like All of these things basically meant that the right people couldn't really get their hands on the scrolls to preserve them rather than sell, you know, at the right time. Um, in 1949, so two years after this, so there was two years of people time where just the people who knew were able to sort of go back and forth, they eventually got an excavation team and returned to the caves. And then for the next eight years, I believe, they had serious excavations of all the caves and the surrounding caves. So I think it was, yeah, 56 is when they really discovered, uh, thought they discovered it. And just very recently, I think it was last year or the year before, they'd announced that they did actually discover a new cave, but that unfortunately didn't really have anything of any particular value in it. But in total, in the way they number these things, there's 11 caves, the main, the main caves, 11 caves, over 1,100 ancient documents. So that's what we find. So there's a lot of things to go through there. Um, of the biblical books, you can see here, these are what they found. So these are the scrolls of all the biblical books. Now, it's, always, it's usually said that the only book they didn't find was the book of Esther. Now, that's not actually true. It was Esther and Nehemiah. They didn't find anything of Nehemiah. Now, they conjecture that that was probably because Ezra and Nehemiah were, were a single book, basically, and they didn't separate them like that. And it was probably just lost on the end of one of them. But it's just conjecture. So it was actually Esther and Nehemiah that they didn't find amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you look at the, so you look how many, 36 copies of Psalms, 29 of Deuteronomy, and then 21 of Isaiah. It gives you a flavor of the focus of these groups. Psalms, because they had regular times of, of regulated worship. Um, in the community and they had their own book of thanksgiving and they even uh, they even have an extra like there's a 151st psalm that we have from the Qumran community that we don't have in our in our bible um, so they had they had all those sorts of things and then Isaiah because remember I, I quoted from the manual of discipline where they actually believed they were kind of fulfilling some of that messianic it's, Isaiah is a very messianic book isn't it hugely about the, the coming uh, Messiah, and so they had that eschatological mindset, and then Deuteronomy, obviously the law, you know, the book that really encapsulates the, the law for us there, and these were the three elements that they really focused on in Qumran. Um, yeah, it's yeah. interesting too. If you go through the New Testament, those three books are the most quoted from. The yeah, that's true for, for for those sort of reasons, so really. Deuteronomy, yeah. Isaiah, and Psalms. Why Deuteronomy again? Why was it focused on Deuteronomy too? Um, well, I mean, I would say because it, it, it's sort of, you know, the, the second law, isn't it? It gives a good summary and encapsulation of, of the, the, the whole Pentateuch, the whole Torah, in, in, that, in that sense. And it was often one for focus. And G, like you said, it was a very popular book at those times. Do you think it? the ones that's only one are like barely even read? Yeah, yeah, I will, probably. I mean, I can't I'd imagine. It was operated quite like today of people. Yeah. <laughs> so, so some of those ones were not read at all. Yeah, so Ezra, yeah. I'm surprised there wasn't more Proverbs, to be frank. Um, if they have a huge, a huge emphasis on the Psalms, I'm surprised the wisdom of Proverbs wasn't considered to be more important. But but then again, it, again, you can't necessarily equate manuscript numbers with their importance. I mean, I think maybe with those three books, but, you know, again, we're only reading, we're reading into the numbers there, but it gives a, it does give a, a snapshot overview, but... They're just a biblical book. So on top of this, 
you had um, apocryphal books. You had quite a lot of what they call the pseudepigrapha and these sort of uh, intertestamental uh, books. And then you had commentaries. There's, there's a famous, they call it the Pesha Habakkuk commentary, which is extremely interesting to look at where you get a good understanding of sort of some of the ways they interpreted the text and what they focused on in the end times, those sorts of things. Uh, quite a few commentaries, um, apocryphal books. We've seen the Manual of Discipline. There were a lot of things that were specifically for them, community rules. So they had the Book of Thanksgiving, like I mentioned. Um, yeah, I'll just highlight a couple of ones. How are we doing? Before you leave this, yeah, story, yeah, let's, let's yeah. also point out these aren't complete copies of every Old Testament. Oh no, yeah, no, no, these of course are fragments, not. Fragments, yeah. okay, uh, and 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 some will have quite a few pages to them, and others it might just be like you know a, a matter of a fragment that's uh, a few inches. Yeah, and that and that's um, so uh, one one of the ones that's complete is we have the Isaiah scroll, right? Mm -hmm. Which is uh, very famous. It is, yeah. It is. A complete it is. Scroll. But I'll show you. I've got a right. replica yeah. of that here. We'll roll that out in a minute. Um, but yeah, so that you're right, and that's the same with New Testament. When you look, when you're reading all these figures about New Testament manuscripts, I have some some New Testament manuscripts. You know, when they say we've got the Gospel of John, yeah, you know, sometimes they're just referring to like three or four lines of what they have, but in textual language, it's still very, very significant for what, for what we have. But yeah, so there were a few complete scrolls, uh, re really, really interesting, but some of the stuff we learned from the other scrolls, historically, is quite fascinating too. So um, I'll go through just a couple of my favorite ones. I'll talk about maybe just a couple of the similarities between the New Testament and the early, early Christians, and then we'll have our final break, and then the last part, maybe we, I can just talk you through some of the things that we have and that'll be quite fun. So this was a very famous, uh, it's called the War Scroll. And it is basically an, a book of eschatology. And it describes a 40-year war between the sons of light and the evil sons of darkness. Um, I haven't read all of the text of it. I've read snippets, snippets of it that have been translated. It's quite hard to follow along with what it's actually referring to. Who are the sons of light? Who are the sons uh, of darkness? Obviously, they consider themselves to be on the on the good side of that, so they were the sons, the sons of light there. But yeah, it's quite interesting. Again, like I said, they were a very eschatological community, believing that they were the ones ushering in, preparing the way for the Messiah. Perhaps the most fascinating one, it kind of useless for New Testament stuff, absolutely useless for biblical studies, but fascinating in the sense that people have written books about it and spent millions of pounds trying to track down is the Copper Scroll. Has anyone heard of the Copper Scroll? Yeah. It's basically an ancient treasure map, is what they assume it is. And it has like 60 different... Yeah, 60 different locations of supposed uh, gold repositories of stolen treasure over the times. And like I say, people have raised expeditions, they've interpreted it, they've gone and they've found absolutely nothing in any of these mm -hmm. places. So whether it was... Well, what it is, we don't really know. Now, I'm assuming at some point, maybe maybe they did have some treasure where they'd hidden them. Yeah, having a good life in heaven. Yeah, or, so, or they just they would just throw this in to throw people off. But it's the Copper Scroll. What's unique about it, though, is it, like you said, the name implies, it wasn't written on skin or parchment or vellum like all the other ones. It was written on a piece of copper and kind of rolled up like that, which is very, really, really unusual. I don't think there's anything else quite like that that they found uh, in the ancient world. Um, and like I've, no, I've never actually seen it except in photos. So I'm quite in, 
I don't know whether they've written on it with an ink or whether they've actually pressed the letters in, like an early press, like sort of thing, into the metal. I'd be interested to know that at some point. But so, and, and there's a few more books like this that are quite interesting. But that, again, you could do an entire semester on the contents of the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and that community of what we're looking at. But hopefully, that has given you a small overview. Now, let's just kind of bring it back up with the New Testament. Are there any similarities between the beliefs of Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls and the New Testament and the early Christians? Again, people are debating this back and forth. You've probably heard the theories that some people say John the Baptist lived with the Essenes and he was part of the Essenes. It's only conjecture. There's no real evidence for that. The reason they say that is because he was a man who was in the wilderness living on the same sort of simple monastic diet and that sort of thing. So whether he, he may have had some interest, you know, it was a pretty small area generally, you know, first century. I'm sure that he would have mixed with the scenes at some point, particularly the ones that were in other villages, not just in Qumran. But you can't identify him as an Essene at this point because he would have rubbed up against some of their beliefs that they did have. Like they, they had the, the typical belief in two messiahs. Uh, one was a king, one was a priest, and sorts of um, those sorts of beliefs. Um, we go back to this. This is something that you do see, like you notice those terms, sons of light and sons of darkness, in an eschatological text. Now, if you go to Paul's epistles of Thessalonians, which are considered to be the most eschatological writings in, in the New Testament, except for Revelation, you'll notice that a huge part of his argument is based on the children of light and the children of darkness. You are not sons of darkness, you are sons of light, therefore you won't enter the time of judgment. Then you see that being developed quite a lot by Paul. Now, I'm not saying he got that from the Essenes. I'm probably saying that they both got that from, uh, from, a, from an original source, probably from, from their own backgrounds on that sense. So that's one way that um, there's a bit of similarity. Another way is what they call the two ways. Anyone familiar with that? Scholars sort of class it as the two ways. So when you read through the Old Testament, particularly, say, the book of one or two kings, you'll find this little phrase, and he did, uh, he walked in the ways of the sons of his, Israel, not in the ways of his father David. So, like, that sort of, that's sort of a, a thing. And this is the development of what they call the two ways. And all throughout the Bible, you'll see these two ways contrasted. So here it's the sons of, the sons of Israel and the, the sons of David. They're the two ways. Proverbs is the way of wisdom and the way of folly. And you see this kind of going on all the time. Now, I haven't got a slide of it, but one of the documents in Qumran makes a huge thing about the two ways. There are two ways. One, one is of light, one is of darkness. And we see this in the New Testament. Don't walk in the ways of the Lord, not after the way of Balaam, it says, isn't it? Again, this, this contrast of the two ways. Um, and you see that making quite a big impact on the Qumran community. And interestingly, if you look at say, uh, um, the early, the, the, the Didache, which is, well, I don't know how you pronounce it correctly, but it's the first, sort of a first century Jewish discipleship manual that was written by the early Jewish Christians as Christianity started spreading abroad. It begins, it's not long, you can read it online for free, it's, it's really fascinating to read. The first line of that document, so this is like a discipleship manual by the, the very early Christians, and it says, there are two ways to life. One way of life, there are two ways to live, one of life and one of death. And it goes on, and, and its it, it whole thing is based about the two ways, the way of life and the way of death. And it basically summarises the commands of the New Testament under the way of life, and all the prohibitions of the New Testament under the way of death. So I see continuity there between 
the two ways from the Old Testament to the Qumran community, obviously into the New Testament and then into the early uh, first century Christians as that spread to the world. So there are all sorts of things that associate. Now the main one, I'll just share the last one we'll, we'll look at, is a textual one. Um, so there's a, there's a document, one of the scrolls is called the Messianic Apocalypse. Again, it's a fascinating little thing, but um, it's not complete, but this is, this is one of the phrases from it. It says, for he will honour the pious upon the throne of his eternal kingdom, release the captives, open the eyes of the blind, lifting up those who are oppressed, for he shall heal the critically wounded, he shall raise the dead, he shall bring good news to the poor. Now, most of you will probably know that sounds like a very familiar grouping of, of qualities there. We find pretty much the exact same thing in John chapter 7. If you look at the text there in John chapter 7, um, I'll just read from 22. So he, remember, this is where they want, you know, are you the one or do we look for another? So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Almost identical in some respects, those two groupings. Now, what's interesting about this is if you, look in, if you have a Bible and you're looking at John 7, it'll give you a cross-reference on that point, which will take you to the book of Isaiah. Which again, remember we saw that they had more copies of Isaiah pretty much than, than anything else at Qumran. And it will take you to the book of Isaiah chapter 35, where it says, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And it kind of goes on throughout the whole chapter. But notice one thing, this is what scholars point out, it never mentions raising the dead. In the, in the Isaiah passage. That you find in the New Testament and in the Qumran scroll. So like the, the thing that people that they puzzle about is where did that little phrase, raised from the dead, get inserted into the passage from Isaiah? Because the Qumran community, pre-Christian community, obviously had that same belief too. And John, uh, this passage in John 7, seems to pretty much agree with that and quote from it verbatim. So was that knowledge or association with the Qumran. Again, I'm not sure you can say that they got that from the Essenes. I, again, would probably say that was built on a previous sort of messianic expectation from the whole of the Bible, rather than just being from the Essenes. But it's an interesting point of commonality, particularly as the phrase is very definite, raise the dead, the dead are raised, but you don't find it in the, in the Isaiah text. So again, very interesting point of uh, continuity with the New Testament teaching there. Um, so I'll leave it there as far as the Essenes are concerned because, like I said, we could go a, a long way. We've talked a lot about manuscripts. I'll show you some of them in the next session and we can talk about them a little bit more. But does anyone have any comments or anything they want to add or ask about the Essenes or the Dead Sea Scrolls? When did they cease to exist? Yeah, m most people assume during 68, 70 AD, when, you know, everything with the Roman armies were sort of gathering around, that's when they decided, right, you know, we've lost our favour, basically, we're not going to be left alone, it's going to, we're going to be destroyed. They bundle their manuscripts into the caves and then they put them in there. And then what happened to them was, kind of, again, lost to history, whether some of them decided to just disappear slowly, excavate out of the area, or whether they were caught up in, in the, the, Jewish, the Jewish wars. Um, we talked about the Roman triumphal procession, didn't we? And we saw the, the Arch of Titus. Like One of the things we know 
is that they always took captive. So a lot of the, Jew, the Jewish people who were taken captive back to Rome at that point, and they were actually used to build the Colosseum. Um, that was actually Jewish slaves that were, that were made to build the Colosseum from, from that period that we have, um, which again is just typical of the Roman concept of shame, of shame and honor. Putting the, the captives to work on your capital buildings is one way to, to really do that. Uh, just to follow up on Tal's question, sorry, Steve. Um, th there may also be some connection between the Qumran community and fitting in with the Zealot movement. You know, we have these writings like the War Scroll and the battle, this last great battle between the Sons of Light and the Sons of Darkness. And, and we know from Masada uh, that there are actually uh, a few scrolls found there that resemble the scrolls from Qumran. And so they, and we know that that was one of the last strongholds for the Zealots, right, mm -hmm. in 73 AD. And so there's some thought that the uh, community there, the reason the Romans wiped it out, was because it, it joined in the, the Jewish revolt. Mm -hmm. So when the Romans came to Israel, they took over also the Judean desert. I mean, they went through and made sure no one was there. I mean, that's kind of the idea. Yeah, you mean during the war, during the revolt? Yeah, the revolt or... Yeah, of course, they ruled over the whole area ever since Pompeii came in in 63 BC and claimed the territory for Rome. Yeah. And then, you know, Herod, uh, and then after Herod's son didn't do a great job, they put in Roman uh, governors, uh, and then Herod Agrippa also was, was in there. Mm -hmm. but yeah, they, so it was always under Roman control. And Pompeii was in 63 AD, right? Not BC. BC. BC? BC. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he brought an end yeah, to sort of not being. The Hashemunian was 167 BC, so like 100 years before him. That's when it started. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then the Hashemunian rule continued. Yeah, like 70 60. years. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, did, like, you said that. Uh, you know, all the Essenes, they it's like a break-off and they don't keep, because the temple was defiled or whatever. Um, and like the rabbinical Judaism today, like switch the sacrificial system, say mm -hmm. with prayer. Like, do we know what they, because it, it also mentions in Philo's quote that like they didn't believe uh, in sacrificing animals. Mm -hmm. Like what? How did they see? Um, kind of, we're not told huge amounts. Like not not like we sort of know about what happened when rabbinical Judaism was started. But it would appear that they had completely rejected everything to do with the crop, the, the priesthood, the high priest, the temple, and everything that was going on there. One of there is a scroll. I didn't mention it, but the in the Essene community that talks about its plans for a new temple, basically. So it would seem that they they didn't actually reject the concept. Um, they kept themselves pure. That's why they have such an emphasis on purity and ritual washings and, and studying Torah, which they thought was one way of keeping themselves pure in that sense, until their, the Messiah, the person that they were waiting for, would come. And it, it may be that they expected him to then build this new temple and reinstitute it with them as the, the four leaders of the people who would be in charge of it. Um, it's speculative, but we don't really know exactly. But Philo's quote does seem to say that they, they didn't do their own sacrifices down in the Qumran community. Um, so, but yeah, so how they actually did, dealt with the atonement of sin, I'm not sure. Pro probably prayer, Bible study, and the continual ritual purity. 
I think that's probably the best we could say on, on knowing that really. Hasidics, like I know we're reading about the time of Jason and Elias, you know, that they were buying, buying the priesthood. Yeah, yeah, okay. So that there's a movement of, they're called Hasidic, I think. Hasidim? Yeah, but they also moved out from Jerusalem because they got tired with everything that happened there. I was just wondering what time period was it? They, they joined up with, with the Hasmians in the revolt. Are you talking about that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so this is the 160s BC, oh, okay. 169, somewhere in there when the revolt started. Right, okay. I was just wondering, like, so were, there, were they also a group out in the desert somewhere? Because you have... There's this, and again, we don't know, but there's the speculation that out of the Hasidim, the Pharisees may have been... Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.